0: welcome to the change africa podcast where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading africa's transformation i'm your host isaac and together with my co-host daniel Merki. We'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs, or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, The Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. My guest today is Benny Bonsu. Benny Bonsu is an award-winning industry leader and director of daily content at Olympic Channel Services as part of the International Olympic Committee, olympics.com. She was previously the head of editorial for women's sport at Give Me Sport, where she led one of the most successful launches of the coverage of women's sport in the UK. Upon starting this role in 2019, Benny historically became UK's first female sports editor. Before that, she undertook various high profile on air endeavors, working alongside broadcasting big like the BBC, Sky Sports, BT Sports, Modern Times Group, and Alibaba to cover and produce award winning content on and around FAWSL, English Premier League, the NBA, NFL, London 2012 Olympics, to name a few. Bonsu is a board of director of Basketball England the Sports Journalist Association and Africa Health Now. She's an advocate for diverse newsrooms in the UK and developing future talents for the sports industry. Help me welcome Benny Bonsu to the Change Africa podcast. Thank you for having
1: me. Um, I've already started laughing, looking at you both, trying to figure out my connections from Ghana and around the world. So it should be a, a great conversation.
0: There's a lot to cover on the podcast, but I want to start. In the beginning, I think when people look at you right now, they associate all the amazing work that you have done for the women's sporting community, for sports in general, for sports, um, for basketball. But you didn't didn't start with basketball. Can you tell us about the, the early beginnings of your career?
1: It's actually um, funny, I didn't actually start in entertainment, I started in education. Um, Growing up, I was born and raised in Ghana, I left Ghana at the age of 10, um, going into the UK and obviously educated in the UK, Um, but my career started in education, my dad was a lecturer at Achimota Achimota School, Um, so I was always going to go into education because I loved it. Um, Went on to become a teacher teacher. Um, qualified as a head teacher um, but whilst doing that I've always done sports alongside education and it's something that I was extremely passionate about. Um, I went on to become a broadcaster for over 23 years and in that journey I took a break um, because the Olympics came to London um, and there was no way the Olympics was going to come to London and I wasn't going to be part of it so I was actually seconded from education to join the Olympics and I went in as a um, Uh, sports and policies um, manager and I did that for five, six years for the London Olympics and then during games time, so the year before the games actually happened, you change from your main role and you go to a games time role and my games time role became um, a producer for the basketball, so the basketball that you guys were home watching during the London 2012 Olympics, I was producing that, Um, so I did that and after that I moved to Ghana Um, and I hadn't been to Ghana since I left um, at the age of 10. So I returned back to Ghana September 2012, actually. And it was supposed to be a holiday. You know, I was supposed to come, rest for a month and then decide what I wanted to do next for my life. Um, And it didn't turn out that way because within the month I was in Ghana, um, Viasat had recruited me to join Viasat One. And that's how I got into entertainment, working with some of the big names that you have, in TV um, in Ghana
0: now, No, okay, so this is the part where I'm shocked because I didn't know the educational trajectory and the school part, so I'm intrigued to want to delve into that before we come to sports and entertainment, etc. What was it like being a head teacher?
1: I mean, I loved it. Um, I, I grew up I grew up in Tottenham. Um, Tottenham in North London is almost like a 2nd Accra in, in the UK. Everybody from Ghana lives there. Um, and growing up in that area, you know, we had, um, it wasn't the best area in London, but it's also it had a community feel. Everybody knows everyone and you couldn't get away with much, but there were some young people that needed uh, extra help, you know. They were getting in trouble with knife crimes, selling drugs, not going to school. Um, and as I grew up there, I knew that if you were focused and you wanted to do well, you could always do well. Um, but some young people, it wasn't so easy for them. Um, my dad also being in education, I saw my dad teaching the Achimoto school kids whilst I went to Legon, you know, university primary. So I saw him do it when I was growing up in Ghana and I always wanted to become one. So when I had the opportunity, even in my teens, when I was in like um, high school and in sixth form, I was mentoring at a young kids. I was a head girl in school. So teaching was always a path for me whilst also doing sports. So when I left school, I um, went to university. I started working for Haringey Youth Services. And my job was to engage, you know, the worst kids in the area. How do you get the worst kids off the street and into the classroom? And I loved being a big sister to most of them, you know, mentoring them, getting them back into school. Um, and I remember my first teaching job was actually back at my high school. And I was head of behavior. So all the kids that would misbehave, they'll be sent to me. Um, and, you know, they, if you get sent to Miss Bonsu, it's over. <laughs> you know, it's like, you'll be, you're going to be in real trouble. Um, so I I did that for many years and I loved it. And I remember one of the head teachers when I was there, you know, I think it was my first year there. And he had said, You know, you have these 40 kids, you know, they're not going to pass their GCSEs. So you might as well do something with them. And, you know, and the best way to get young people engaged is to tell them exactly the truth. Don't lie to them. And I remember calling all of them into one room. Majority of those kids were Ghanaian or Nigerian or Jamaican kids. And I said to them, I said, you see your name on the board? They think you're not going to make it. They don't think you're going to pass. And I have a problem with that. And your parents will have a problem with that. So how are we going to change it? And I remember for the next two years, those kids, first in school, last to leave. You know, they wanted the extra help, the extra support, and I really saw the impact of that. Um, a lot of those young people went on to university. Some of them are actors. Some one one became a a Grammy nominated producer. Um, uh, some of these kids, I am banking, and I knew it was something I wanted to be passionate about, but also as a person. Being in education in anything I do, I always wanted to do it at a higher level. I didn't just want to be a teacher. Um, knowing that in the UK at that time, when I was in education, there wasn't many Black female head teachers either. So my next step was to I want to get my te- head te- you know my headship. And I remember moving on to another school, and I knew there was you know a certain amount of teachers in the school that were on this training to become head teachers, and you know my head teacher was like I don't have funding to put you on it Um, but I was determined, I paid for myself Um, and I went, I did the exam, I passed um, and I got my headship and as soon as I got it it was a great um, time for me I knew at that time I've done over 13 years of teaching I loved it, I had inspired and um, encouraged a lot of young especially black boys and girls to dream bigger than what society had for them to do um, and they were doing well and I thought that 13 years of doing that I've done enough I have my head shaped maybe when I'm retired at 60 65 at some point in my life I will open up my own school but I wanted to make sure I left education having the highest qualification so once I got it I left and jumped straight into sports on a full-time basis
0: and but when you were growing up yourself were you engaged in sports
1: Yes, um, as soon as I got into the UK, when I came to the UK I spoke English um, but I wasn't speaking English like the English kids. So the best way to learn the language, my mum enrolled me and my sister into every sports club you can think of so we did everything we did athletics football basketball netball name it we were doing it um and you know at that time you don't know at that time what, what it was teaching you but you know we learned how to speak english doing sports we learned um about the community that we lived in through sports but also we made new friends that became family for us, so sports has always been a part of me. I've been all, I've been doing it since the age of eleven. I still do it now, um. So it's not something that is, is going anywhere, going away anytime soon.
0: I think you have the very blessed opportunity to want to have had the opportunity to do the things that you are passionate about and also skillful in. What was that segue from education to journalism like?
1: Yeah. So for for me during that time again. I knew I loved sports. I don't know if I wanted to go into journalism. I loved to write. I never wanted to be in front of the camera. (laughs) It's not something I I wanted to do. I just wanted to write. So whilst I was teaching, I also had kind of as a hobby, I was writing for platforms. So basketball 24-7, street hoops. Um, And then eventually, you know, when the NBA then started coming to the UK, one time, you know, we'd had a game in London and my cousins who played um in the NBA I was arguing with the boys after the game and there was an executive producer from the BBC in the stands and he could see me like five for nothing arguing with six for nine six for ten men um so he's just watching me he'd come down and he called me aside he said Benny I know you've been writing and you enjoy writing but I really think you should step in front of the camera." And I'm like, no, it's not for me. I don't want to do it. And he's like, no, honestly, either do camera or go on radio. Because I think you have the talent for it. And I said, oh, no, nah, I don't want to do it. And he's like, I've just watched you argue with a whole bunch of NBA players as a 5'3 woman <laughs> in the, like on the field of play. You're going to be amazing on TV. And that's how it came about. So I was in education. I always knew that sports was always going to play a big part in my life. I didn't know how it was going to manifest itself. Um, so I always did it as a, you know, as a hobby to a job that actually paid my rent, that paid, gave, paid me for me to eat. Um, and also as a woman of colour at that time in the UK, it wasn't normal to see black women on TV or on radio at that time as well. So to do it, you were not going to get paid a lot of money to do it on a full-time basis. So you were either doing it as a hobby or you're again paid really, really small. So I had to be really smart with that. I couldn't just jump from education and go into sports. The time I decided to do that was 13 years later, knowing that when I left to go and do sports, I would get a job, knowing that I had a solid 13, 15 years worth of experience of writing beforehand before I could get a job, proper job within sports. So the transition, you know, and I always say this to people. It's not so easy for us, you know, people of colour, to just, I'm going to quit my job and go and find a job in the media. In the UK, it doesn't work like that. You always have to do it as a side until you feel comfortable enough to know that you've done enough to argue for a point, you know, to argue to get a role that will actually pay you to live. And that's when I did that.
0: So I'm trying to build a timeline. Where does your popular blog that eventually became... Um, a TV program, where does it fit in the bedroom diaries of a black woman?
1: That was, that's old school. So that came about. So I was teaching, then I took the break to work for London 2012 Olympics. When I finished the Olympics, I moved to Ghana, September 2012. I came and then Modern Times Group recruited me as the head of production for Viasac, which meant I also uh, managed and ran MAP. Uh, which is the modern African production, which was just down the street from us. Whilst I was there, I had done that blog, The Bedroom Diaries of a Black Woman. I'd been doing it for many years. I'd been, I had been write. That's what I do. I love to write. And I, at the time I was in Ghana and I was observing how different the Ghana girls were in the lifestyle to the Ghanaian girls in the UK. And we used to, you know, we used to laugh about it in the office and via side, you know, the men would be like, oh, so what is happening in the bedroom diaries of a black woman this week? Um, because I remember my first year in Ghana, I pretended I didn't speak tree. So I would hear the insults, you know, just landed up with the inner energy, just coming to take our jobs and blah, blah, blah. Oh, they insulted me well. They really did. <laughs> and I remember one of the guys from um, Junior at the time he was head of programming from Kumasa, you know, because, we you know, I'm Ashanti as well. And he was like, pretend you don't speak Trees so you can see who's for you and who's not for you. So for the first year, oh, they insulted me. I got my fair bit of insulting. And, I, you know, my predecessor was Amma Brebese, Amma Kea Brebesse. Yeah. So obviously you're stepping into shoes that already had a name. Um, and in my second year, when they realized that, oh, this she does speak true and she understands God. She's just played all of us. So she's about to make our lives a nightmare. So in the second year, you know, when we started, when they realized who I was and my experience, um, they were like, actually, we don't want to joke about bedroom diaries anymore. Let's make it a reality because it could be funny for us in ghana and that's when i started working with step and sadiq uh, who used to run, I forget the name of their production company, but I'm, I'm sure you know who they are. Um, they run yeah. a, they do produce a lot of the TV shows that you have in Ghana because at that time they were producing a lot for us on Viasa as well. So they were like, let's make it a reality. So it was between the 2013 to 2014-15 th- before I left Ghana that it became a reality in Ghana. And that was pretty fun to work on because Ghana girls and UK Ghana girls, two different... <laughs> human beings they are not the same but it was great to see how you know through the bedroom diaries it was exploring the issues women of color african women experience on a day-to-day from finding love from you know working being a professional woman to not wanting to work to marriage sex all of it. it just explored all the topics that women um struggled from on a day-to-day basis it was it was fun at the time real fun
0: one interesting fact I found about the London Olympics was the first Olympiad where almost each participating country had one female athlete competing. And I think that segues very perfectly into your career where you've been leading and platforming the stories of women in sports. Um, what was that pivotal you know, moment of working on one of the most successful Olympics that we've had like for you?
1: i t- I tell you the truth, um, it was when I got the call to go and work for london twenty twelve was one of the best feelings in the world. It's the Olympics. Everybody wants to go to the Olympics, and I was excited um when I started it was I didn't like it. My first two years was horrible because again, I didn't see many people that looked like me. Uh, I didn't see people that were Africans. there wasn't many black people. So my first two years was a bit kind of like, man, this is London. We've got the games on diversity. And I don't see it. And then as times go on, you start to realize like this is the first games in London that for every sports that's happening, there is a woman competing in every sport. Right. But also London is one of the biggest cities in the world. It's going to be one of the biggest games in the world to be there and know that I played a huge role in the kind of the preparing of it, you know. Sports policy and, you know, sports sports policies and procedures manager. Like, literally, I'm writing policies for the London 2012 Olympics. That's huge. By the time, it didn't feel like it was huge. But literally, nothing happens without my policies. That's one. But also, having the opportunity to produce the basketball. So, I'm there. I'm seeing Kobe and LeBron and, you know, D-Wade and Kevin Durant. And I'm producing them and they're walking into the arena every day and go, what's up, Benny? What's going on, Ben? What we got today, Benny? And you're just like, wow, this is a dream. And as for somebody who was a sports fan, somebody who was writing about these people. And remember, I started in sport because I loved sport, but also a lot of my sports coverage was on African athletes because at a time, African athletes didn't have the spotlight that the other athletes had. So I really just focused on them. And London 2012 allowed me to really get to meet all these athletes from different places, Lithuania, Russia, China, Brazil. They were all there, you know, and I was producing them. And, you know, they're like, so Benny, I, liked, I really liked that article you did on Sergio Barker. How come you can't do that for me? And all of a sudden, your eyes are open. But I think for London, success of the Games was amazing. But more importantly, having women at every stage of what was happening In those games, when we talk about gender equality, London really shined a light on that. And I guess as we head to Paris, it will be the first time we have 50-50 men and women competing at the games. It's huge. That's huge. You're going to have just as much men as women competing in the games. That's never happened before.
0: And your policies were a huge part of that.
1: <laughs> it's exciting. It's like, yeah. I, can't, I can't describe it. Paris is exciting for me.
0: Great. So basketball. Um, your brother played basketball? Perhaps, and yes. Pap- so, so I think it's a family thing, perhaps, um, where that, that interest was grown from. And he had the opportunity to work with all the big stars uh, in it. Uh, The continent has, you know, given so much to basketball. I mean, we're talking right now. I hope Joel Embiid becomes the the MVP. I think he deserves the MVP. I think the the Joker, thankfully, has messed up on a few games these past weeks. And so hopefully he becomes the MVP. Um, The continent has given so much to basketball. but unfortunately, it seems that the development of the sports on the continent has slowed down. You have worked... um, in reinstating the, the confidence of the game in Africa and helping train um, indigenous talent here. You know, the NBA Africa, Basketball Africa League, can you talk to us about how important it is that we develop the sports here and also for women? Because the truth is that when it comes to sport, the Africans, people of black descent, we have a certain advantage always had. And when it comes to basketball, in particular, black people have always reigned in that sport. So why not Africa?
1: I mean, I have a huge passion and it's a focus for me for the future. It always has been. I remember Amadou Galofao flying to Ghana in 2012 when I moved to Ghana. And he came and he he sat outside sat with me and he said, I'm going to do this NBA Africa and I'm going to need you to help me to do this because we need to we need to develop the game on the continent even before he had flown to ghana to ask me to help he was going every summer with loa Deng, um, flying around africa different parts and doing camps just to give young people the access to play now amadou i've always bought into amadou's vision for the game because he knows what it gave him but also I've grown up with people around me in Tottenham and in London that I know that basketball is not just a sport, it's a culture, but the culture also comes with a whole community, right? And um, for us, yes, NBA Africa has done some amazing things on the continent over the last 20, 25 years. The BAL is now in Africa. And then, you know, you hear people talk and they say, you know, well, basketball is not as big as football, so we're not And that's such a myth to me because basketball is so huge for the younger generation. It's huge. Culturally, it's huge. Ghana, people like to think football is no. You ask the young people what they're watching, guaranteed they're watching basketball. They want to play basketball because it's fashionable to play basketball. It has the culture, but also it's a whole community. And it's not just a community in Ghana, it's a global community. And for us, you know, the BAL is there. Nobody's talking about the development of women basketballs in Africa. There are some people that are doing great work in Ghana and in different parts of Africa to really try and develop the talent that we have. But how do we build sustainable development of the sports in Ghana? I worked with a Ghana basketball um, you know, association previously, previous president. And it was hard, even Ghana, to get off the ground, to get the men to listen to me telling them was even a problem. Because today, ah, you are coming to tell us what to do. Meanwhile, I'm the one that's had the experience. I was a coach. I've been doing this my whole career. You know, and luckily, this new president that we have, uh, Atul Van Essen, he's passionate. He understands this sport as a business. And if we get it right, it generates economic, it, it contributes economically to the country. You know, we have basketball courts in Ghana, but teams can't use it. Why? I don't understand we have we now have national teams. You know, people need to understand we need to support them. We can't expect our national teams to go and play when there's no development for them. They don't have spaces to to practice, they don't have funding to do what they need to do. Coaches are not developed at all levels, men and women. Right? So for me, this new president has come in who has been great. You know, when I first reached out to him and I said, Look, my name is Benny, I've done this, 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 I would like to support. He was on a call straight away. Charlie? Please come and help us, you know. And he's the first person I sat with that has a five year plan of how he's going to grow the sports in in Ghana. Huge. Who has that? Who has that? But he understands it, so it's working with him, seeing what support he needs, and getting that support for him. But also with the connections I've built over the years abroad, it's linking them together so he can also steal some knowledge from those people, because I think for us, we look at football, the new Black Stars team, this new Black Stars team, it's exciting, right? Before them, it wasn't exciting because we'd make a whole lot of noise, we go to the World Cups, we go to the Cavs, we don't do much, we come back and we blame everybody else. How about we put that same energy into basketball and see what that does for us as a nation? How about we support them? Because for me, basketball, we see what it did for South Africa when they started doing the global games. We see what it's doing for Senegal because they build an arena. We also see what the Rwandan president has intentionally done and what it's doing for Rwanda. Ghana, what are we doing? How are we supporting our own? It is important for us to understand the business.
0: Yeah, Rwanda has done it for both sports. Rwanda with Arsenal and yet still with basketball. So even if we were still infatuated. Uh, fascinated and infatuated with basketball, Uh, sorry, with soccer, we can still do that with basketball. Because like you're saying, I went to a poker school. The high school culture is predominantly athletics and basketball in Ghana, and also in most African countries. In fact, it is dominant more than football is for the young people, and the talent is there. So how do we move that forward? I want to zero in on women particularly and you're very passionate about women's development of the sport and it's not just basketball but across all other sports and athletics um we we are talking about the development of the game i think again let me go back to basketball my favorite sport um just a few days ago we saw the biggest viewership that ncaa and it was huge it was a huge moment for women's basketball but the argument for most people is how are we going to continue on that I think that it was basically because we've had some perhaps one of the most generational talents that has ever played at that level. How do we get more generational talents to play different sports of women? Because I think at the end of the day, sports, what people want to see is competition and just great talent at display, right? And I don't think we don't have that for women. We do have.
1: Listen, the greatest lie that's ever been told is that people don't like women's sports. That's a lie. That's the greatest lie. That has been told for so many centuries that people go, oh, but well, nobody watches women's sports. You're lying. Yesterday was the finalissima football um, game in London at Wembley, England versus Brazil. It had over 87,000 people attending. The NCAA women's final was bigger than the men's NCAA. Women's World Cup 20, 2019 in France. I was there. Every stadium was filled up. People, men and women in the stadiums. You look at the Liga for women, filled up. You look at, you wait for women's champions finals, filled up. Who is telling this lies? And I've been, you know, I was head of women's sports for Give Me Sports. And I remember when I I went for that job, I became the first female sports editor in the UK. And, you know, people say, but nobody's watching it. But nobody cares about women's sports. This was only four years ago. And every meeting I went into, I always go into a fight about it. And I said, who are you talking about? Because you keep on talking about women not watching sports, but you're forgetting who, who runs each house. Women have the spending power. Moms decide what football boots, what football shirt they're buying for their son or their daughters. Mom decides where she's going to go shopping. If a woman has the spending power in your house, and she is interested in sports. Where is she going to put their money? She's going to watch women's sports. But also, as, as, as an industry and as sports, if women had the same level of investment men had, we would be toe-to-toe. But it's okay. Men, Women do not have to follow men's way of doing sports. That's where innovation comes in for women to win. There are different ways we can enjoy sports. And generate more revenue if women were given the same opportunities that men were. Let's take the Black Stars, for example. Look at the amount of money we pour into the Black Stars. It's not the same level of money, amount of money we're we're, we're pouring into the Matildas. It's not the same. They don't get the same media coverage, but the women do better than the men. Imagine if we did. Look Look at England now. England women, untouchable. Since when did England become the best in football in the world when it comes to women? Now it seems like they're beating and winning everything. Because you know what? They made a strategic, intentional plan to invest in women's football five years ago in partnership with Barclays Bank. When they said, we're going to put this amount of millions into the development on grassroots level, which allows them to develop sporting facilities and give access to every young person that wants to play football, who are girls. We're going to make sure schools have the resources to be able to teach that. But also, on the professional level, this is the amount of money we're going to invest in. Then we had a media outlet. Give me sports women, put money in there to do that at that time. BBC decided to start showing women's football. Sky Sports did the same. BT Sports did the same. So all of a sudden, if you're giving the women the same attention you give men you see the rise of the audiences now having 87,000 people at Wembley for England women's game that's unheard of but with this new generation it's not about generational talent because we've always had talent we've just haven't shined a light on them before it's only now we have a different innovation that allows us for us to see what is happening. So if you don't put it on TV, you're going to find it on Twitter. If you don't find it on Twitter, you're going to find it on Instagram. You're going to find it on Twitter. You're going to find it on Facebook. But also the athletes are giving you access into the world of women's sport, whether it's basketball, whether it's football, whether it's cricket. They're going to give you access. And as we always say, as brands, if you're prepared to invest in women's football, you have a customer for life. Whilst men, I can't speak for you people, but I know for women, if you do make that commitment, they're also loyal to your brand. And that's what's happening with women's sport. I think the biggest lie that they have told in the past and they now try to tell now is that people don't love women's sports is a lie. Absolutely.
2: And from a business perspective, it doesn't even make sense. Because one would definitely have to look at this in terms of return on investment in percentages rather than in absolute returns because of the historic investments into female versus male sports. And I've always wondered why no African country has identified investing and focusing on female sports as a strategic opportunity. The way you described that England five years ago invested into female sports and are already, already reaping the benefits. And I think that strategic opportunity is diminishing over time if one does not seize the opportunity now.
1: I mean, I said, I said this four years ago. I said, if you're a brand and you're now wanting to invest in women's sports, you're late because you should have been invested almost 10 years ago. So the likes of Nike that invested in it, Barclays, they're winning. You look at a women's kit for the world com- coming up in New Zealand. Better than the men. Sold out. Right? Because they understand that if we invest, their returns are bigger. But you cannot not invest and then sit back and go, oh, yeah, but women's sports make no money. But you haven't invested. You haven't. Look at, look at the Team USA, the women. Team USA women have won every World Cup, every Olympics for as long as I can think. And you're telling me you were paying the men who have never won anything more than the women? Am I missing something? You know, we talk about equality, but the world isn't equal. You can't invest millions and millions of men's football and give the women peanuts and then go, yeah, but nobody's watching. Did you give them the same amount of money you gave the men? And that's the conversation we've got to have. And I guess for Rwanda, for example, I love the vision Pokagami has for sports and the way they've used it. Sponsoring Arsenal. Let's say they gave Arsenal 2 million. You have Arsenal visit Rwanda on your T-shirt. Tourism gone up. That's the first thing. Second thing, Pokagami understands that, you know what, we don't have the facilities. But if we build the facilities... They will come. He, You know what he did? He called Senegal. He found out Senegal did it. Within six months, Kigali had an arena. Kigali has an arena. Now they could hold the FIFA Congress in Kigali. They could do the UN Conference in Kigali. They can do BAL Finals in Kigali. Meanwhile, Kigali doesn't have like millions and millions of hotels like Ghana has. But they're doing it. So intentionally, if we sit back as Ghanaians, for example, or even as Africans and say, actually, you know what? Well, we love football in Ghana, for example, and I speak of Ghana because I'm Ghanaian. We love football. Maybe let's invest in basketball and see what happens. But building a basketball arena doesn't mean that arena does only just basketball because you can transfer, transform that arena into a, a table tennis arena, a badminton arena. A track and field arena if and when needed. You can do other sports. You can have concerts. But you've got to have people that can think of all of those things. Because when you have it, that's when you can go internationally and pitch and say, come and host this here. And the more events have been hosted on in our country, the more revenues you're generating. And that's for men or women's sports. But we've got to have the intention of wanting to do more and growing sports. Not just for men. But for women but also understanding that we have to be intentional in how we grow sports on the continent which means from grassroots all the way through to the professional level
0: and i think on grassroots sports um, as a teacher you have worked with a lot of kids troubled struggling and you have done grassroots work as well what do you think is missing when it comes to grassroots sports in africa What are we not doing right because you know in the west there are systems in place where they're able to train these kids and also complementary education so they don't even have to you know go into traditional education for a very long time so they can really hone on 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 developing their skill set and yet our very amateurish um, sports camps still is able to you know develop some very talented footballers how do we take it to the next level? And how, what, are the, what are the gaps now in, in, in um, amateur sports development, um, sorry, grassroots sports development in Africa?
1: I don't think we cannot not do it, right? Because there's some organizations that do very well. Shoot in Touch in Rwanda, that's a great grassroots program. Rights to Dream in Ghana, that's a really good job. Then you have others that work in silos, you know? So, and I, I can speak from the basketball community in Ghana that everybody's like this is my academy and this is what I do and I don't want my kids to go there and I don't want this person to be involved they're working in silos working in silos doesn't allow you to learn but also then doesn't allow you to grow right and then we have not the right people in charge running sports but also without the knowledge and understanding the impact and why grassroots is important If we understand the structures we need to put in place to develop the right programs, to develop the right talent, there's no reason why we can't win. Morocco right now. Look at Morocco at the World Cup. Like, honestly, I was gobsmacked. I'm like, wow, where did they come from? But then you go back and you look at what they're doing in Morocco and then you understand it. Because again, like Rwanda... They understand in order for you to get the best, you have to invest in the best. So you build their best facilities, you train and develop the best coaches, you train and develop the best technical staff, but also you you train the best administration that understand how to develop strategic plans to implement when it comes to grassroots development. Grassroot development doesn't only sit with um sits with academies, it sits within schools. What are we doing in primary schools and secondary schools when it comes to grassroots development? How does that fit into the education system? What does our sports education system look like right now in Ghana? How do we implement and work in partnership with the different you know, organizing committees? So whether it's the basketball federation or the fencing federation or the rugby, how have we included them in the development of this from the grassroots level to the professional level. It's all about knowledge, but it's wanting to come together and intentionally implementing that. But that comes from the top. With a a clear vision, if the president tomorrow said, I believe that sports can add to us economically, because of that, we're going to invest this amount of money. it, It makes the world of difference. But it's also about, again, the right people with the right knowledge, implementing these strategic plans to develop from the ground up, not from the top down. It doesn't work like that. And sometimes a lot of our African countries, including us, we look at what is at the top and we think that's the best. And it really isn't because we know we've seen it with the black stars, things have gone wrong. And we don't make the right decisions you know we keep going kind of just we're going to cover this one and then put this person here but really the old heads are still telling them what to do no you have to clear the house and you have to bring in people that understand that are intentional that want good not for the riches for their pockets, but for the development of sports for all because Charlie if we get it right sports can generate revenue and can add to us economically, big time. But if we get it wrong, we're always going to be saying, oh, but we never win nothing. We never win nothing because we haven't been intentional. That's why.
2: Yes, and in the example that we are talking about, it's not like it's a thesis. What we are talking about is proven by the success of Africans living abroad and going or being nurtured in a different system. And there is multiple examples. I was fascinated to realize that, for instance, also the success stories, let's say, for instance, in MMA, that basically all of them had to go abroad, some at earlier stages, some still made it despite maybe going out at later stages in their life, but all needed to move out of Africa to be able to realize their potential. And I'm not saying to realize their potential because of the commercialization or the infrastructure that exists there in terms of the sport at the highest level, but even just to start to train at, at a level that enables them to realize their talent. And then there's other examples. You look at Jamaica, that is a small country and that has had extreme success in athletics and especially sprints and they are all descendants of west africa so the case of a comparative advantage is approved so it's mind-boggling that we do not take advantage of this and then that's on the sport side the genetic side but then you also look at the side of the expertise in building the infrastructures required to nurture those talents from an early stage. And there it's the same. We are now speaking to someone like you who has the expertise. But the question is, how do we bring in these people, how do we bring in people from the diaspora and give them the platform to build the systems we require and then nurture our talents homegrown? And then, I mean, then we also have a different level of return on those talents because once you build the systems and people are grateful towards the nurturing they got you can have a different level of expectation in terms of what they give back to the society they came from
1: I mean I always my my aim in everything I've done in my journey in sports like my uncle Bishop Osei Bonzu, thank you know thank God for him He's the reason why I went to London, because he, he also studied abroad by return back to Ghana. And one thing he's always said is that I'm not sending you abroad to go and stay there. I'm sending you there to go and learn so you can return to make, make Ghana better. And for me, everything I do, if you ask anybody, even now where I work at the Olympics, it's a, if you ask anybody, what is Benny's objectives, objective? So say Benny is only going to be here for the next five to ten years And she's going to return to Ghana to run sports. She's going to become sports minister of sports. And that's what it is. I'm not here because I love being in Europe. No, I'm here because I know we like that knowledge that we need to implement this to create a change. I'm here to learn that knowledge. But I'm also the first person to share that knowledge with anybody that wants to learn. You know, there's an amazing professor at the University of Legon by the name of Doctor Bella. This guy is my guy, you know, I, I met him a couple of years back and he's passionate about sports. He gets it. And we will sit there on phones and exchange knowledge because we want better. We know Ghana can do better. We know we can implement better. But that takes again, we as a country have to be intentional in how we're going to do it. We want to be, do well on the world stage. We want, to do well at, we want to do well at the World Cup. We want to go to the Olympics and shine. We want to do this. We want to do that. But that starts with us. You know, and there's a great speech by um, Pokagami that he gave last week. He said, we all sit here on expert panels and we keep on asking the same questions and answering the same answers. But nobody's implementing. All we're doing is talking. Just talking. And that's where we're at. We're just talking we need to implement you know if i came to ghana tomorrow and i said show me show me where your development academy is for the national team for the under 12s and the 13s and the 16s where's our where is our national academy meaning i've never seen it but we should be developing these kids from the age of 10 11 we should go to these academies and look at the, that 10 year old that we've scouted from another team that's coming to the National Academy because we know this is the next Kudus or pare or Asamwajan or Stephen Appear, the next. We should have that. We should have a national program that identifies those talent from a very young age. Charlie, we don't have it. And we need to be intentional with all the success we have with tourism and the world knowing who we are. We need to follow it up with being intentional when it comes to sport and when I mean sport not just football not just basketball we're excelling in rugby we're doing well in cricket netball is a growing sport volleyball athletics let's give these athletes the support they need to make us proud what we can't keep on doing is taking the kids that are international they'll go and compete for us somewhere And then we want to claim them because they have a Ghanaian name. Meanwhile, we haven't supported them. How are you claiming them when you haven't supported them?
2: We have now spoken a lot about the economic benefits that sports can bring to us as a nation. But there are a lot of other indirect benefits. You mentioned, for instance, how sports helped you in terms of integration when you came to Tottenham. And beyond integration, I think there is... general added advantage in terms of character building and I mean you're forced to develop skills that are that are necessary for teamwork and discipline and many other things that are essential for us in terms of nation building and on a personal level when I think back I was born in Turkey lived in Guinea-Bissau and then when I was seven years old we moved to Switzerland and from day one I started playing football that I had never played before and I made a lot of friends that I have till date. And it was kind of an automated integration that one does not think about. It kind of pushes you towards that. And that is kind of the benefit we could also reap from having sports on a broader level. Because of course, not everyone can become a professional. And then aside of the integration part and the character building, there is further benefits, be it health aspects. And when you come back to Ghana, I think our children have such a great natural talent for movement that you can see the difference by eyesight. So we should definitely take advantage of this for a myriad of reasons.
1: But Ghana is like Senegal, or at least it should be like Senegal, Like... Have you guys ever visited Senegal or been to Dakar?
0: I want to. I want to. Charlie, I want to. You wake, Hopefully this year I will.
1: You wake up in the morning. You're going, I don't know, 6 o'clock, I'm heading to my meeting. Everybody in that city is jogging. They're either jogging or they're exercising by the beach or there's some exercising machines alongside the beach. They're all outside doing sports. Sports is part of their DNA. It's part of their culture. They understand it. It's what they do. Rwanda. Not a sporting nation. But their president is being intentional. So, they're going to have their World Cycling Championships. They're, they're having the Ironman Championships. They have their BAL there. FIFA is now building these academies. Ghana, what are we doing? <laughs> Ghana, what are we
2: doing? I have a vision. Benny, when you become the sports minister, you bring the Olympics to Ghana.
1: My vision is so big, eh? because you know the Olympics, the first Youth Olympics is going to Dakar. Obviously, I'm excited about that. I would be more ecstatic if it was in Ghana, but cool, we want the big one, right? So what we need to do to do the big one is start being intentional on how we do this. And the great thing about Ghana is Ghana is so commercial. I don't know why people don't see that commercially Ghana could win this build the facilities and then invite the world to Ghana what we can't do is that we haven't built it or this president built it they didn't finish it so I'm not going to touch it I'm just going to start a new one no Charlie finish it make it world standard and then invite the world because the more you're creating the the facilities the more these federations are looking at you to say ah But we can host this in Accra. We could do this in Accra. And then as soon as they do that, it's adding to marketing. Contribute to local business people that are generating business because we have events coming up. So we don't just have to wait for Dirty December to make money. We can make money all year round. All year round. But we have to be intentional when it comes to the development of sports because of what it can contribute to us economically.
0: So, as the director of daily content for the International Olympic Committee, what does that role look like? And um, obviously, sports is all about storytelling, and it's a very powerful tool for storytelling. Community integration—you've spoken about all of that. Um, how do you make sure you create inspiring and uh, diverse content that you know encapsulates the stories of everyone globally?
1: My job is huge. (laughs) It is huge. Um, But it's also an opportunity to really tell the stories we've been talking about in regards to the athlete's journey and ensuring that we represent every continent equally. You know, it's important. The Olympics rings, the five rings represent every continent we have around the world. And our platform, olympics.com, you know, luckily for me, which makes my job even much better, is that my focus is not on the bad things that's happening in the world. My my job is to make sure I'm getting those imp- inspirational human stories from around the world. And this is not just focused on elite athletes. It's also focused on communities. You know, what are people doing in the communities? The power of sports, how is it changing people? How is it contributing to communities? Um, and how is it changing communities? And then obviously you have the Olympic Games, which allows you to even tell more incredible stories to the top. Um, so my job is quite big. Um, Olympics.com, Olympics channel, Olympics.com focused auditorially on news features and telling the human stories and our premium content. Some of our premium award winning content is an Olympics channel, which is free. It's like it's like Netflix of sports, everything you want, documentaries, replays of all the Olympics, previous Olympics, um series, everything lives on there. And I work with a great team of people that's from different parts of the world. You know, we have teams in in Japan, India, Africa. We have freelancers in Africa, America, UK, we do over 10 different languages on the platform, ensuring that we're covering the world um, when it comes to sports. So it is a big role. It is an enjoyable role, but it's also a huge responsibility into making sure that you're representing the athlete's voice, but also the communities around the world.
0: What are the couple of stories that you've covered at the Olympic channel and the Olympic.com that resonates with the vision that you as an individual Benny Bonsu, have for, for sports in the world, which is basically transforming it and making sure that it's integrated for women, for everyone. What are a couple of inspirational stories that ring home for you?
1: we um, we recently, not recently, maybe last year, November, we were in Dakar to do the first Dakar On Dakar On is a festival celebration ahead of Dakar 26, the first Youth Olympics, Summer Olympics, to come to Africa. Um, this is a huge one for me personally because it's Africa, um, but two, one of my best friends um, who, when I first started journalism, we I was the only Black woman doing it in basketball in Europe and around the world. Um, and she was the second Black woman that came in um, from the French-speaking countries and to, together we covered sports over the years, but she's now also relocated back to Senegal with the same vision that I have for Ghana to really change sports working with AFD. Um, and we were in Senegal and, you know, we looked at each other and we, we started laughing. One, because we can't believe the Olympics is coming to Africa, this first thing, Second thing that we're both here working on it to ensure we create change. Um, but thirdly, watching her, who comes from a Muslim country, um engaging with women of all different cultures engaging in sports and building this journey ahead of 2026 for senegal is one of the most inspirational stories that we are covering at the moment which is a story that didn't we didn't discover last year we're going on a long journey of 3 years from where it starts and where it ends and every time i look i go back and look at the dakar stories on olympics.com. It puts a smile on my face, one, because the world will see that this is not the Africa they see it to be, that we've moved on. Um, But two, the possibilities that we have as a continent. It really inspires me on a day-to-day basis. Another story that I do love um, that I can't get enough of is LeBron. Um, His journey and his rise in basketball is undefeated. You know, he comes from Akron, Cleveland, uh, Akron, Ohio. um, Grown up with his mother. Gone all the way up. Won everything you can think he could win. Been in an Olympian. Opened a school that is giving back to the community. And he's able to do that because of what he does as a sportsman. How many people have done that? And every time I get an opportunity to tell his story... I really want to amplify it because it's like, this is what sport is all about. And when we talk about the Olympics, you talk about the Olympic values. You know, we have three Olympic values, which is excellence, respect and friendship. And we represent that in every storytelling that we do. And my friend, I talked about Sarah Cyril in Senegal. She represents that. LeBron represents that. But also looking at the younger generations, so you look at the you know, NCAA women, Angel Reese. you know, This girl is wild. You know, she's a queen. Um, She's an athlete. She's a fierce athlete. And you're also looking at her journey. She's she's won this title. She won't declare for the WNBA this year. She will do next year. But you see how the world turned against her when she dared and had the audacity to be confident. You know, it makes me wonder when she does declare for the WNBA next year, you know, what's she going to be like? if she is who she is today then it changes the face of sports for women of color you know and what she represents for the rest of us and that really um daily it gives me hope and that's some of the stories that for me as a director of content at the um, olympics.com of an international olympic committee it keeps me makes me wake up every morning to want to go to work because you know You're changing their lives by telling these real stories. This is not um, headline chasing, kind of clickbait things, but this is real life. This is the real life journey of these incredible athletes that are really changing the lives of people. So those three um, really inspires me.
0: I think we're getting to the conclusion of the conversation. Um, One thing I want to ask is, you are probably a basketball fan as much as I am. What is your... Favorite team What's your favorite team And how are they Progressing or suffering You know If you're like a New York Knicks fan Then I know that definitely I can't, first, of,
1: <laughs> first of all I can't believe you,
0: you said
1: I think you're a sports fan Sports is my life That's the first thing Sec- uh, Second I
0: mean the- I mean basketball Basketball I mean Basketball <laughs> uh,
1: I'm, a, I'm a I'm a big football And basketball fan And obviously athletics But secondly I do not support New York Knicks No one supports New York Knicks <laughs> Um, I am a Boston Celtic fan. And for us, you, oh. you are over there talking about the Warriors when you've got a Celtic fan sitting here. You should have more respect for us. Celtics fan, if you look at the Celtics as a team, as a young team, as an exciting team, their talent is ridiculous on a Celtic. I can, you can't, even if you're not a Celtic fan, you cannot deny them that.
0: Thank you very much, Benny Bonsu, for being with us and sharing your insights on sports in Africa and the world on the Change Africa podcast. I think it was truly like an honor. Um, and, you know, from the education, from the, you know, gossips, um, all of it. It was just exciting for us to have you here
1: thank, on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for letting me live through my um, my past to my present. Uh, it's, it's always interesting when I look back, kind of the journey I've had till today it's uh, it's been a it's been a a long one (laughs) it's been a long journey but a good one yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah. Yeah. thank you very much The Change Africa Podcast is produced by Isaac Abua and Daniel Merki it is executive produced by Tim Yastratus the theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay, and graphic design by Andrew Ayi this podcast is a production of Nexa Media.